Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. We're going back to Europe today, France and Switzerland mostly, and 500 years ago on top of that. Serving as our tour guide is once again Carlos Ayer, who wrote the book Reformations, and he's going to introduce us to a few figures, notably John Calvin, and how these men still affect us today, both in positive and negative ways. Now I work for I wanted to first start by asking about this phenomenon of millennialism. First, if you can explain what that is, and also, understandably, millennium being a thousand, you would understand why in the year 1000, or at least the years leading up to it, that people would start to be thinking about that. But why does that play a role during the Reformation, which is in the you know, 1500s? Sure. Well, you know, um, this belief that upon his return, Christ will establish a thousand-year reign, which will then be followed by the final judgment. This is one reading of Book of Revelation, and it has a long history. Uh, yeah, the year one thousand, uh, people, some people uh, thought would be the time. Mm for this new uh, earthly kingdom of Christ to be established. But there have been other dates set. So it doesn't, it doesn't have to like match uh, the calendar. The year 1260 was also believed to have been the year for the return of Christ and the beginning of his thousand year reign uh, because of the prophecies of um, a Franciscan in Southern Italy who divided history into three eras. The era of the Father was the Old Testament. The era of the Son was all the time between Christ and 1260. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then 1260 on would be the era, the, the era of the, the, the Holy Spirit, where everyone on earth uh, w- would live like Franciscans. In other words, um, communism. Right. <laughs> no private property. <laughs> no wealth. So there have been other crazy times. But the, the reason that... Uh, millennialism or apocalypticism surfaced during the Reformation is the fact that, well, this was one of the prime historical issues that came up in Protestant theology was why did God allow the church to become so corrupt? And why is he now finally doing something about it, you know, through people like Luther or Calvin or Anabaptists or whoever. Um, it, it was a way of, of coping with the great shock of, you know, throwing out the old church, calling it uh, demonic or the church of the Antichrist. Luther himself was very, very uh, taken by the idea that the reason that he came along when he did and that he was, you know, commissioned with starting this this new refurbishment of the church was that it was the end times. Now, he did not actually uh, adhere to a, a millennialism, mm-hmm. 
in the sense that there would be a thousand year reign of Christ. No, he thought that the, the return of Christ would bring the final judgment. And he thought that was just on the horizon. And that was the reason that the way that he put it, the, the word, right? The word was once again uh, made the centerpiece of the true church. But of course, anyone who disagreed with him, uh, Luther would uh, align with the devil. Right. And so it went to each of the branches of the, of the Protestant Reformation. Some Anabaptists were very taken by this idea. The one case that stands out is the Anabaptists who took over the city of Münster in 1534 and proclaimed it the, the New Jerusalem. One thing about uh, Revelation, I know we're kind of going off on a sidetrack here, but that, you know, historically, I think most uh, scholars would tell you that, you know, it was written specifically for Christians during the, the reign of Nero, and, you know, mm-hmm. Nero was the beast and, and all right. that. And so, in some people's minds, it's, you know, has a shelf life, maybe, so to speak, or it's, its relevance maybe has expired. But And it was such a controversial book that when the church fathers, I guess you would call them, or the, the different councils were trying to put together what was the official, uh, going to be the official New Testament, that was one that was often debated whether they should include it or not. But obviously over time, it's had new life you know, breathed into it, or a lot of people see it as still relevant as, like you're saying, predicting the end of the world or how maybe Christ will come back. Do you know where this idea that you know, Revelation is still relevant yeah. to any generation, where, where did that start? And where did oh, I, that, that kind of forgetfulness of what it originally was about begin? I don't know. I can't put a date on this. It's been on and off, on and off, on and off, depending on which group of people you're talking about mm-hmm. who might have you know, latched on to the book of Revelation. But in the 16th century, you know, they didn't have this knowledge about when it was written. So, you know, it was the New Testament. It was in the New Testament. So therefore, it was canonical for for all the reformers. They they didn't question that. But they didn't have this historical critical uh, knowledge about the date of its composition and the uh, linking of the imagery that you find in the book of Revelation uh, with the Roman Empire. So that's gone, you know, on and off, on and off, on and off. But uh, actually, John Calvin didn't like that book very much. (laughs) And it's the only book of the New Testament that he didn't write a commentary on. He stayed away from it. It's a very troublesome book because, you know, it's filled with imagery that's, well, as is the case with all imagery in, in an apocalypse or apocalyptic text, it, it's open to multiple interpretations. So the book of Revelation has become very important uh, to certain movements uh, that, that became churches throughout Christian history, including, you know, in the 19th century here in the United States, uh, so-called Millerites from whom uh, then emerged uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. And it's a very important book for Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, And I don't know what the current state of interpretation is among Jehovah's Witnesses, but when they tried to convert me back in 1968, (laughs) boy, that book was 
was the centerpiece. They viewed the entire Bible, or at least the people, the, the witnesses who were trying to convert me, they viewed the entire Bible through that lens, through that book, right? And they had some very, very peculiar interpretations that of course I've never heard before. But they told me in 1968, you know, you, you'd better convert now because the world's going to end in 1973. And I said, oh, good, I'll have time to finish college. <laughs> <laughs> they got really mad at me. I'm sure. <laughs> they actually sent, I, I was a co-worker, you know, I worked in a grocery store part-time. My co-worker who was trying to convert me, who was a very nice guy and very zealous, um, his supervisor actually came to the grocery store a few days after that, after I made that comment, and he said, you've got to stop talking to Greg. He's not going to talk to you anymore. Don't talk to him. You're shaking his faith. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, it was, uh, they were they were damn serious about 1973. Hmm. So I guess I didn't pan out like they thought. No, but, you know, I don't know how... Uh, how much progress has been made in, in, in the historiography of, of these movements, mm -hmm. but it's very common. A lot of these apocalyptic uh, movements, they have to constantly reset the date when it doesn't happen. And then they find some interpretation of why, you know, why the, this has not happened. This goes all the way back to the second century to Montanus, an early Christian who said, yeah, the end is near. And and he had prophets and prophetesses, women too, prophesying specific dates. And then whenever the, the time came and went without the return of Jesus, they found some theological reinterpretation of passages in the book of Revelation. Right. I, I don't know why they even try that, because I mean, even Christ seemed not to know exactly when that would be. Although That's he, right. And if you go by his words, he seemed to think it was going to be within the generation he was talking to. Mm -hmm. But uh, but even then he said, no no man knows the date or the hour. But I, I, That's right. Apparently they, they sell a lot of books that way, though, because I remember uh, when I was a kid, it was like 88 Reasons in 88. That was the, the big book. Oh, really? Yeah, that was a oh. big thing that had everybody talking. Of course, when 88 you know, came and went, that guy had, a, yeah. had like you said, he had a, a follow-up and why he was incorrect. But now he really knew what the date was, which I can't remember what, a, what that was. But I actually, in, in college, I wrote a paper on the, the Millerites. I can't remember much about it, mm -hmm. except that, yeah, they, they came up with this interpretation. Some change had taken, actually, something that had happened that year, whatever that year was. Something had happened up in heaven, right? Some very crucial uh, move was made in heaven that year huh. which was you know of course unseen to us right but yes yes the end is near <laughs> and then they said some other date and then you know even catholics can get swept up into this i remember when i was a child do you know about the uh, apparitions at fatima right the virgin mary appeared to these three little peasant kids right and left left them some prophecies but the final prophecy that the Virgin revealed to these kids was kept a secret. And many Catholics, when I was a kid, thought that that, that secret was, and the reason the Pope did not announce it to the world, because the Pope had the secret, you see, mm -hmm. uh, was that it was uh, the date for the end of the world. And that it was, you know, it was imminent. It was soon. And he just didn't want to scare every Catholic on earth. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it actually turned out to be 
some very you know cryptically worded prophecy as this as most prophecies are kind of secrets to de- decode about an attempt on the pope's life huh and then you know john paul ii got shot right so i still don't know what the secret was most people uh, maybe maybe it's been revealed or not but i've i've read many interpretations of that secret as being a prophecy about john paul ii's being shot right these things don't go away but you know i, I think um a sociological analysis of these groups it's very easy to do and it has been done because you know it's always you know marginalized people who love the idea of the world coming to an end because you know they're they're marginalized to begin with for different reasons but you know poverty or race or something else and um yeah who's happy about the world ending well it's not people who are comfortable right <laughs> I think about in China, one of the biggest civil wars they ever had was the Taiping Rebellion, and that was, you know, a guy that had uh, tried to, you know, pass the imperial exam, which, you know, in that world meant you could have a decent job and provide for your family in the government. But uh, he failed, like, I don't know, like three or four times, and he was at the end of his rope, and I think he got sick and had a fever and ended up picking up a gospel tract or something and uh, read about this guy Jesus and realized, like, in his fever, I think, that that Jesus was his literal brother and, uh, and was giving him secret messages and how, how to, you know. Well, it, it never ends. Yeah. It never ends. There's actually, a, I read this article over 10 years ago, but it was about uh, this syndrome in, in Israel. American fundamentalists, men, there are many of, of, of cases of this, and it was reported. I forget what newspaper I read it in, but um, anyway, there have been and there continue to be apparently a lot of uh, American fundamentalists who, when they get to the Holy Land, realize that they are Jesus yeah. coming back. So they actually have, according to this article, is a hospital in Jerusalem that has a, a special ward <laughs> for these people who believe themselves to be Jesus. Wow. I don't know if they have the wing of the hospital or what, but they have, you know, specialists prepared to deal with these second coming Jesus. I get that. I can see how people would be overwhelmed. Uh, well, imagine you've been reading the Bible all your life. You right. structure your whole life around it, and there you are. Right. Oh, my God. Uh, I've never been to the Holy Land, but I can imagine it would have a tremendous effect on me. I was wondering if you could tell the story, it's called The Affair of the Placards? Yes, well, in uh, 1534, there were a substantial number of converts to Protestantism in France, and John Calvin was one of them. And actually, John Calvin had had to flee from France because fear of persecution. But it was this pivotal event known as the Affair of the Placards that actually uh, created an institution, actually a court in, in France for trying and condemning Protestants. They came to be known as the Burning Chamber, Chambre Ardente. King Francis I is on the throne 
in October of 1534, one day he wakes up. You know, back then without central heating, uh, if you could afford it, you would have curtains on your bed, kept you warmer, kept the heat in there. So he wakes up and inside his curtained bed, he finds this poster condemning the Catholic <laughs> Eucharist as an idol <laughs> and condemning the, the entire uh, ritual structure of the Catholic Church as demonic. And he's astonished, how did this get in his bed? Oh my God, uh, this means my palace, is, it's, it's got Protestants in it. And Francis I uh, is a complex individual because he didn't want his rulership uh, challenged in any way. You know, he had this motto, one king, one law, one faith, right? He didn't want the Catholic Church challenged because he was considered himself and French monarchs considered themselves the head of the French Church long before the English monarchs did the same thing after Henry VIII. So anyway, he, he saw this as a challenge to his power, immediately stepped up the persecution of Protestants. But the amazing thing about the affair of the placards, what scared him the most, was not necessarily the fact that somebody had placed one inside his bed but that as he found out over the next several days, these posters had gone up all over France, right? His entire kingdom was blanketed with these posters. And that's, that was just the final straw for him. He, he, he could not abide the thought of, you know, having a network of Protestants throughout his entire kingdom. Having him in his palace was bad enough, but having him everywhere. So stepped up the persecution of Protestants. They arrested quite a few, uh, and in Paris they had some major uh, display of, of the king's power and of the king's relation to the Catholic Church because they 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 had they, they had processions, you know, like parades, throughout the city of Paris. Out of every single church in Paris, uh, the clergy and the faithful marched out to the streets of Paris, following. Uh, the Eucharist, a consecrated host, right? And this was to purify Paris. And they all congregated at um, Notre Dame Cathedral. And after having mass there, they burned, I forget what the number of Protestants was, right there, right in front of Notre Dame. So it was a symbolic cleansing of Paris and beginning of a, an era of persecution, which is why after that point, uh, Calvin never returned to France. But boy, in Geneva, they trained plenty of French refugees to become missionaries, sent them back to France. And that's how, you know, the Huguenots, that's the, the name given to the Calvinists in France. The Huguenots uh, took over large sections of France. They became the majority in certain sections of France. So you brought up John Calvin. First of all, you mentioned that he's French. And I just always assumed as a kid, because you associate him with Geneva, that he was Swiss. In fact, I've heard him referred to as a Swiss reformer. Yeah. No, he was he was very much French. He was from northern France. How would you pronounce his name in French? Well, actually, his name, his given name was Colvin. C-A-U-V-I-N. Colvin. But like all anyone affected by the Renaissance, and by Renaissance humanism, they tried to classicize their names to make make them more either Latin or Greek. So he replaced the U with an L. 
Uh, and you pronounce it almost the same way. Kova, Kava, just a slight different inflection on that vowel. But his, his, his Latin name that he took up was Calvinus, right? Of course, that's, that's the correct Latin, Calvinus. You had mentioned before on one of the other episodes that, uh, you know, a younger John Calvin had written to Martin Luther, and of course Luther you know, was kept from seeing his letter. One of my favorite facts about John Calvin, I didn't read it in your book, but I heard it somewhere else, and maybe you can confirm or deny this fact, but he had initially self-published a book that had sold so badly that he was in debt over it for maybe like a decade or so. And he, he was even trying to get professors to use the book in their classroom so the, you know, the students would have to buy it. Now, whether that story is true or not, I, I'm sympathetic with it because I've been in several bands. And, you know, they always make you, when you try to put a, a CD or record out... That's right. You have to buy at least a thousand. And so, yep. inevitably... If you're lucky if you sell 50, and for yes. the rest of your yeah. life, you, you have an enormous collection in your closet or basement. Oh, <laughs> yes. Two of my kids have been in bands, too. So, so I'm, I'm familiar with So I feel for John and then this uh, quandary he had of, of a closet full of unsold books. So if, first of all, is that story true? That story is true. I don't know about the amount of his indebtedness, uh-huh. right? But what he wrote was a commentary on... Um, the Roman philosopher Seneca, uh, a book that, um, well, what was the subject? De Clemencia, on clemency, was the, the text that he wrote a commentary on. I don't know how much money he, he owed for you know self-publishing that book, but it was a huge flop. He thought he was going to be the next Erasmus. He had a very high opinion of himself and uh, was thoroughly disappointed by the failure there's no other way to put it, the failure of this book to set the world on fire. <laughs> to point to this as a, you know, a pivotal in his life, and one, maybe one of the reasons that he, he became Protestant was that you know he was just so dissatisfied with the, the scholarly stuff. But he himself admitted that he wanted nothing more in his life later on when he was in Geneva already. He didn't want to be in the limelight. He didn't want to become a reformer. He just wanted to be a scholar for the rest of his life. He, he, he confesses to this. He would have wanted nothing more than to have a place where he could live in peace and quiet and just write scholarly books. But uh, he was called to Geneva. The whole story is very funny. Well, please it's, tell that, if you don't mind. Keep in mind, this is somebody who believes in predestination, right? Already. Right? He was traveling around, moving from place to place after he left France and was living kind of a, as an itinerant refugee trying to find some place. And he was heading for Strasbourg, which by, and this is 1536. Strasbourg uh, was, uh, had become a Protestant city. So he was headed for, for Strasbourg. And Strasbourg was a free city. It didn't belong to any country or to the Holy Roman Empire. Well, it was part of the Holy Roman Empire, but you know, it, it was, it ran itself. Anyway, he's on his way to Strasbourg and he, passes through Geneva, which, by the way, in 1536, had just become an independent city. They had rebelled against their overlord, the Duke of Savoy. And simultaneously, in 1535, simultaneously gotten rid of the Duke, or the Duke's rule. The Duke had not set foot in Geneva for I don't know how long. Anyway, uh, they reformed the church. 
they threw out the Catholic Church and became independent in 1535. So when Calvin gets there in 1536, he's just published a really successful book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, the best summation of, you know, reformed Protestant theology to have been produced ever, you know, between 1517 and 1536. This was a wonderful summary. So people knew about Calvin. So he gets to Geneva in 1536. They're still struggling, you know, with their independence, and they're still actually finding images to destroy. And the man in charge, William Farrell, Guillaume Farrell, another Frenchman, who had led the Reformation before Calvin got there, he hears that Calvin is in town. So he goes over to the inn where Calvin is staying, barges in and tells them that if he does not stay in Geneva and help him, Farrell, run the church, God will punish him. (laughs) That this is... This is, this is God calling you. And Calvin would later say that when Pharrell put his hand on his shoulder and told him this, he was convinced that was God's hand. Because this is Calvin's notion of predestination is that God reaches out to you through other people. That's why you need a church. That's why you need preaching. That's why the church has to be reformed. And that's why you, you know, ideally should reform all of society because predestination how does god call you god calls you through other people so he stayed in geneva and was miserable there for the rest of his life except for a brief period there in 1540 he got kicked out of geneva because he wanted more control of of the city itself by the church but he comes back in 1541 they ask him to come back on his terms and he comes back and stays there totally miserable. He hated he hated running the, the church and basically running the city too. Just hated it. Uh, and um, this was also part of his view of predestination. You know, when God calls you, it's never going to be easy. He's not going to give you an easy job. And as a matter of fact, in several places, he says, that the best way to know that you're doing the right thing, that you're, you're working for God, is that you personally are miserable. Because <laughs> it has to be a hard job. God would never give you an easy job. It's always got to be hard. So that's uh, that's Calvin in a nutshell, I guess. Um, very, very driven man. He took his duty very seriously. On his deathbed, he was still dictating letters. He was so sick. He had many, many illnesses, including uh, these killer migraines. And yet he never stopped working. And on his deathbed, he's dictating letters and somebody asked them to take it easy. Hey, come on, uh, give the scribe some rest. You get some rest. And he said, what? Would you have God find me idle at this moment? <laughs> so, Calvinist work ethic. Oh, yeah, Calvinist work ethic, yeah. I know he's referred to somewhat as like the, the Protestant pope in a lot of ways. Yeah, and Geneva was referred to as the Protestant Rome. Because they trained so many clergy to send to France and to other places. Uh, the thing is that, that the city itself was transformed after Calvin got there because uh, all of these refugees uh, came to it. And it's a very small city. I mean, the, the old city, the walled city, it had a wall around it. It's very small. And the population, uh, I, I've always tried to figure out where they put all these people in Geneva, because nobody could live outside the walls. It was too dangerous. 
and, and they were surrounded by Catholic uh, principalities, Duke of Savoy on one side, France up on the other side. They were they were just um, surrounded. So the city itself was very small, but it got flooded with refugees, many of whom would then be trained as clergy to send back where they came from. My God spoke and he spoke so sweet. I thought I heard a shuffle of angels feet. He put one hand upon my head. Great God Almighty, let me tell you what he said. Go tell that long tongue liar. Go tell that midnight rider. Tell the gambler, the rattle, the backbiter. Tell them God Almighty's going to cut As I mentioned before, you know, John Calvin, I think it's safe to say, had a, a major influence on America's you know, collective thinking, especially around the, the founding, around the revolutionary time. And, of course, you can also point to some negative things that he had some influence on as well. But And I'll get to that in a second. But one thing is, is this idea of the depravity of man. I, I think you see it a lot in the, a lot of the founding documents, especially uh, like the, the Federalist Papers, uh, in mm-hmm. the writings of James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and even in Jefferson. I think Jefferson called this problem of humanity uh, like a germ that no matter where we go, we carry it with us. And and so because of this, you have this uh, cynicism towards uh, putting a bunch of power into the hands of any one person. And so this is why you have, partly why you have checks and balances and all that in our system. Can you explain exactly what was Calvin's Thinking and of course very similar to Saint Augustine's idea of original yes. sin, and I know there's a lot of elements to this question. But first, if you want to talk about the American founding and his influence, but also uh, were Saint Augustine, he owes a lot to him. And, and do they ever do they differ on any fine points about this? Well, yes, uh, Calvinists were convinced of human depravity uh, precisely because Calvin and Luther were both uh, very fond of St. Augustine or Augustine, who had developed this theology in the 4th and 5th century. It was just quite obvious to Augustine that something had gone wrong with human nature in the Garden of Eden. Depravity business, original sin, Augustine actually in the Confessions refers to the human condition as a monstrosity. And he uses that term in Latin. There's no other way to translate it. He asks the question, a rhetorical question, what is this monstrosity? Or sometimes it's translated as, when's this monstrosity? What's the monstrosity? Monstrosity is, you know, also straight out of Paul. And I forget which one of Paul's letters it's in. He says, you know, why is it that I I can't do what I want to do? And I sometimes do what I know I should not be doing. The problem of, of sin. We're damaged, we're damaged goods. Our, our reason and our will have been damaged as a result of the fall. That's Augustine's take on it. And that's why you need the church and that's why you need the sacraments administered by the church because they, they, they help to repair that, but it's never repaired completely. So humans are inclined to sin. Calvin and Luther both uh, agree on this. They don't differ much from Augustine in this respect. They both think that, you know, the, the cure for this illness is the church and its sacraments. And, you know, of course, preaching the word. But you've got to get that message out to people that they're damaged. Everybody's sick and everybody needs this medicine. And the medicine is the Christian faith. 
the true Christian faith, not what the Roman Catholics had. And, and this idea of, you know, innate corruption and the tendency towards doing evil in, in human life, it, it's not just a theory in a way, if you, if you view it sociologically, you know, it's a way of explaining the horror of life on earth, constant people killing each other, doing terrible things to each other, committing all sorts of sins. Why do people do this? Why can't we just stop? Uh, well, you know, this is a part of the punishment for what happened in the Garden of Eden. So this is endemic. Catholics have the same theology too. They stress that too, yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, during mass, you confessed your own sinfulness. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. My fault, my fault, my most grievous fault. And you pound your chest as you do each one of those three. Uh, it's my fault. Sin is my fault because I'm damaged goods. So please help me, Lord. Lamb of God, take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. This is repeated so many times in the in the Catholic Mass. That just if you listen to it and you hear it, it, it can be very very shocking. Constantly begging God for mercy, mercy. Why? Because we're damaged goods. Now, to North America, Calvinists bring this with them, but it it doesn't necessarily. You don't have to be a Calvinist. It can also be just a plain, reasonable, clear reading of human history that humans are inclined to do evil and that humans who have power and are given power they're going to want to abuse that power as much as possible by the way let's throw in another name Niccolo Machiavelli most people who, who hear of Machiavelli say oh yeah he was a goddamn uh, skeptic who didn't believe in the Christian faith or something no thing is that Machiavelli, who is, you know, also considered a secularist, one of the first sort of deep dish secularists of the Western world, what he says in his infamous book, The Prince, is exactly the same thing that Augustine says, which is, you know, The Prince is a book written, how do you become a ruler and how do you stay in power as a ruler? <laughs> and Machiavelli's advice is, look, Human beings are damaged, goods, and everybody wants to rule the world. So if you want to rule the world, you've got to do whatever it takes. Don't follow the Ten Commandments. If you want to be a ruler and stay a ruler, you have to very often disregard the Ten Commandments and just be as, as awful as other people are. Oh, my God. So by the time you get to North America in the 18th century, the Enlightenment, uh, which affected Thomas Jefferson so much and Ben Franklin and, and uh, John Adams and all the other founding fathers of the United States, they were convinced of human depravity, but not necessarily because they were Calvinists. As a matter of fact, there's a letter exchange between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, which is just amazing, written towards the end of their lives, because, you know, they both died on the same July 4th. Right. Actually, yesterday, yesterday was the anniversary of their deaths. Yeah. They both died in 1826, July 4th, and which I've always found very strange. I wondered if they had a suicide pact. <laughs> <laughs> well, Adams, he knew he was dying, and he thought Jefferson, I think he muttered to somebody that Jefferson 
like that old fox is going to outlive me. But oh yeah, yeah. He didn't realize that Jefferson had actually died a few hours before him already. That's right. Yeah. It's it's really amazing. On the fiftieth anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, right. it's just amazing. But anyway, there's this letter, and I, I quote it in in Reformations, I think. But it's an amazing letter written by Jefferson to Adams, because Adams was uh, considered himself some kind of Calvinist, right? He was a believer and a Calvinist. And I forget what he said to Jefferson in the previous letter, but Jefferson fires back and says, Calvin, his God is a monster. It'd be much better to be an atheist than to be a Calvinist because Calvin's God is such a monster. So Jefferson hated Calvin and what Calvinism stood for, Mm. but he was convinced of human depravity, the same as John Adams and all the others. And that's why you set up checks and balances because Machiavelli doesn't talk about checks and balances. But he, the advice he has for any ruler is you've got to watch your left, your right, your back, your front. They're going to come at you from all sides because people are deep down inside capable of the worst evils. So by the time you get to you know 18th century North America and 18th century England, there are many um, thinkers who uh, would agree with Calvin on the issue of human depravity, but not on anything else, right. basically. Right. What I find fascinating about that concept is how it is in contrast to later, like Hegelian or Darwinistic or you know, progressive ideas about mm-hmm. how humans can be perfected. You know, right. they differ on some of the finer points, but. You know, some say that everybody, if they're just given the right education, they can become good. Um, right. Of course, some say no. Some are just born bad or criminally minded. If we weed them out of the gene pool, then that'll improve humanity. And of course, Woodrow Wilson, you know, he hated the, the U.S. Constitution because it had all these checks on power because he mm-hmm. felt he was the right guy that could wield power responsibly and, and for good outcome or good use. Uh, of course, you, you just look again, look at the history of the 20th century where you had unfettered power and where that got us. Well, not only that, you know, to bring it to the present day, mm. you're right. You're absolutely right. This is a cornerstone or foundation of much liberal so-called progressive thinking is that human beings are perfectible. And what you need is the right social, political, economic structures. If you have, quote-unquote, social justice, no one will ever be bad. So this is why you can cry uh, cry out and hang banners out your window that say, abolish police. And I saw many of these signs in, in Brooklyn, where my daughter lives. Abolish police, and, and then signs that say, actually said abolish prisons their belief is i mean that these abolished uh, defund police people what do they argue oh let's just get more social workers and psychiatric uh personnel yeah. on the streets and then that'll solve the problem nobody will need to steal nobody will feel like they you know are are, are being treated unjustly and so on and then we see what happens uh, when the police are defunded <laughs> is you end up with you know Portland or or, or, or San Francisco uh, with total lawlessness 
or Minneapolis is a good example. Minneapolis, I, when I lived in Minnesota, I thought Minneapolis was probably the perfect American city. It was so clean, so peaceful. The crime was so low. And now Minneapolis it is just, it's a crime-ridden city. Well, I think they have more carjackings than any other city per capita. But the whole idea that you know human beings can be trusted to be good on their own through so-called quote-unquote social justice, whatever that means, that is just so fundamentally wrong in a scientific way, right? Mm -hmm. If you just do a science, cold, reasonable, not, no theology, cold, reasonable assessment of human behavior and history. And look at what Putin is doing in, in Ukraine. You have to admit, yes, human beings are capable of doing terrible things and restraining those who are inclined to do terrible things like that kid who shot up Island Park outside Chicago yesterday. Yeah, people do horrible things. Mm -hmm. So it is a monstrosity. And I'm sure that, you know, there's no kind of you know reasonable, responsible person who hasn't throughout their life wondered why it is that one actually misbehaves frequently. And, and, and you have to be disgusted with yourself. Oh my God, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> or I can't believe I did that. You know, my fault. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Good Lord, you know, I failed two kids <laughs> in my reformation class this past semester. They never came to class. <laughs> never. I only saw them at exam time. And that's that's how I spotted them. I said, who are these two guys? I've never seen them before. <laughs> and and they thought they could pass the class yeah. without ever coming to it. And I, it's just astonishing to me. You know, that kind of behavior. There's something wrong with us. <laughs> well, I, I think you can make the criticism that some generations in America were too hard on young people, maybe. You know, the child should be seen and not heard and, of course, beating them with, within an inch of their life for minor uh, infringements. But at the same time, some of the conversations I've had with whatever you're, they call the current young generation, uh, they're very similar to ones I had with some of my students in China because I brought up this thing about this concept that everybody at their heart is selfish. We're all jerks. And that, you, know, you just get this blank look like, well, I'm not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I just, I'm astounded that anybody would not be self-aware to realize that, you know, we all are operating for our own self-interest and sometimes mm -hmm. at the cost of others' interest. That's right. Uh, and um, God help you if you try to claim some kind of power over them. Yeah. Because it's a very twisted sort of reasoning. You know, oh yeah, I'm good. So therefore nobody should have control of me and my decisions, right? Because I know what's right. And, you know, it's kind of an adjunct uh, principle to the abolish police, abolish prisons kind of thinking is um, everybody makes the right choices. Mm -hmm. If you're oppressed, your right choice, the right choice, the right thing to do is to steal. Because why should the store have stuff and charge you money for it? It's unfair. So on, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's something I get, you know, this is, the, we're still on the same topic, but quite often when I do public speaking on Cuba, the first question I get after talking is, 
how much property did your family own in Cuba? Right. And when I say none, ooh, then they're stunned. They, they, they're trying to delegitimize everything I have to say because if I had property and other people didn't, it's perfectly fine and just. That's social justice for me to have my property taken away. And, and therefore, the reason I don't agree with socialism or communism is that I'm selfish. I'm a selfish bastard who only cares about his property mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So that's why I hate the term social justice so much. Uh, and also sort of sorts of redistributive uh, thinking. Oh, yeah, well, I ought to have property just like you. Why should you have that house? I want your house. <laughs> right. I want it. Uh, anyway, it's crazy. It's been around forever. And unfortunately, it will be around until uh, the millennium. <laughs> until it's, Christ returns. It's sad because it's ruined the word and the concept of justice. I mean, yes, because it's a wonderful thing when it's real and not, as I view it, when those people say social justice, I feel like they mean revenge or yeah. tyranny, a new tyranny. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, absolutely. But you call it social justice. You know, and, and George Orwell had figured this out very clearly, having lived in Spain during its civil war in the 1930s and seeing what communists uh, were up to and also what the Nazis were doing in Germany. Mm-hmm. You change language. You change language and, and you change people's thinking. So you call it social justice. Yeah, well, uh, that must mean that it is justice. And uh, then you rewrite history. And that's also very Orwellian, and you find it in in 1984, his novel. The Ministry of Truth in 1984 (laughs) is constantly rewriting history. Right. Because, quote, unquote, he who controls the past controls the present. He who controls the present controls the future. It's very scary stuff. One of the the things I perceive as a negative influence that Calvin had on uh, American history was predestination. Uh, I'm going to read you a quote from Calvin I got from your book. Quote, We call predestination God's eternal decree by which he determined with himself what he willed to become for each man. For all are not created in an equal condition. Rather, eternal life is foreordained for some, eternal damnation for others, unquote. Now, obviously, there's a lot of problems with that. But specifically to the American story, you obviously have a contradiction to the Declaration of Independence that we are all created equal. So there's that. But also, a lot of slave masters would explain why certain people were destined to be masters and other people were destined to be slaves by using Calvin in this idea of predestination just to justify their rule over other people. Can you reflect on that? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, that's one of the, let's call them uh, painful consequences of Calvinist predestination, which is, by the way, 
technically known as double predestination. What's the difference between single and double predestination? It, <laughs> it's something of a specious or, or, or false difference. Single predestination is this interpretation. Okay. God knows. He has foreknowledge. He knows who's going to be saved. And he knows who's not going to be saved. So he actually doesn't predestined people to go directly to hell. They get to hell all by themselves (laughs) through their behavior. (laughs) And uh, double predestination is exactly what Calvin says in that quote you read. Yes, he creates some people for heaven and he creates other people directly to go to to hell. That's That's why Thomas Jefferson thought that Calvin was a monster, incidentally. And who authored uh, the, the, you know, the all men are created equal sentence? Thomas Jefferson. That's why he hated Calvin so much. And he thought that, you know, Calvin's God was a monster. So we have this uh, kind of dialectic or, or tension, right, between the Calvinist ideals of the North American colonies and then the Enlightenment ideals of somebody like Thomas Jefferson. Calvin thought predestination was very comforting thing to know that whatever crap happened to you here in life all the miserable things that could happen to you like kidney stones which he had and and migraine headaches they're good for you (laughs) it's you know god god is uh, refining you like you know silver in the furnace through pain and suffering but it's good for you so therefore to know that you're saved is a great comfort in the midst of suffering so therefore, you know, you're stuck in Geneva for all your life and you hate it. <laughs> That's good for you. Oh, what a great thing that, you know, at the end, I'm, I'm going to be saved and, and, and be in heaven with God. So it, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing, this predestination. And by the way, the Council of Trent, the Catholic Council of Trent, uh, reaffirmed predestination as real. But as is the case with uh, Catholic theology. Paradox is, is not only acceptable, paradox is central to all the main beliefs. Paradox is, yes, God does predestine, but we all have free will. Mm-hmm. So both and rather than either or. Luther did not elaborate a theology of predestination explicitly, but implicitly he also had a predestinarian kind of theology because he thought there is absolutely nothing we human beings can do to please God or to obtain the gift of grace from him. It is a pure gift and he gives it to some, but not to others. But he didn't elaborate that into a theology of predestination. So the, the Council of Trent, back to that, uh, you know, the paradox in Catholic theology is uh, the Council of Trent says, yes, there is predestination, but no one can ever be assured that they are predestined to have. No one should claim that they are the elect. Pretty strong stuff. Whereas, um, you know, in Calvinism, you do have a notion of the elect. And of course, in Geneva, if you start misbehaving, they'll either um, throw you out of town, or if you misbehave uh, badly enough, they'll kill you. The Anabaptists uh, rejected 
the idea that we have no free will. On the whole, most Anabaptist uh, churches, the many that developed, they, they resolutely believe in free will and in human responsibility. Uh, this is just a side. I, I was raised Nazarene, which they're mm-hmm. of Wesleyan. You know, yes, so, yeah, so, definitely, yes. So Calvin was always the villain. <laughs> yeah, of on. course, yes. Well, Wesley <laughs> himself, so an Arminian, right? So Arminianism is a Calvinist sin. Ooh. And uh, actually, uh, yeah, I gave a talk at... Um, a Nazarene College in Boston a few years ago. Oh, really? Yeah. A very nice place. But, you know, the students still had to attend religious services. Yeah. Like twice a week or three times a week or something like that. I went to a Nazarene University in Nashville, and that was still required chapel. They even had like a, this is back in the 90s, they had a card system where you had to swipe your card uh-huh. when you came into the... Oh, wow. Yeah, well... I was very moved by the service I attended mm. at Eastern Nazarene College in Boston, because it's quite obvious, undeniable, that the students who were there, most of them were there because they wanted to be there at that service, not because they were, you know, required to attend. I always find these things very moving, and uh, I love every hymn Charles Wesley ever wrote or composed. Man, he was just incredible in capturing this, this, you know, Arminian theology. Yeah, he, it was amazing how he was able to pack all that in and be poetic at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're still in a reforming mood, this episode was the fifth on which Dr. Eyre was with us regarding the Reformation, starting back on In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 245. Or if you're wanting to ponder more on American history, on 266, Dr. Dennis Bowman talked with us about the complex relationship of the American founders with the institution of slavery. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye.